0: Welcome to the second Ted Hughes Society podcast, and the second podcast to focus on Mark Wormold's recent book, The Catch, subtitled Fishing for Ted Hughes. One of the most important threads of the last podcast was to place Ted Hughes' magnificent collection of poems, River, into a literary but also a personal context. In doing this, Mark was joined. By the scholar of modern poetry and expert in welsh literature catherine robinson in this second podcast mark and the poet priest and scholar malcolm guyt look at one particular poem from river the kingfisher i will be starting this podcast with a reading of the kingfisher but any listeners who would like to have the text in front of them during the subsequent discussion, it can be found on page 70 of River, on page 166 of three books, and in the hardback collected poems of Ted Hughes, it's on page 662. The Kingfisher by Ted Hughes The Kingfisher perches, he studies, Escape from the jeweller's opium, X-rays the river's toppling tangle of glooms. Now he's vanished into vibrations. A sudden electric wire, jarred rigid, snaps with a blue flare. He has left his needle buried in your ear. Ophish oaks, kneeling, bend over, dragging with their reflections for the sunken stones. The kingfisher erupts through the mirror, beak full of ingots, and is away, cutting the one straight line of the raggle-taggle tumble-down river with a diamond, leaves a rainbow splinter sticking in your eye. Through him God, whizzing in the sun, glimpses the angler. Through him God marries a pit of fishy mire. And look, he's gone again, spark, sapphire, Refracted from beyond water, shivering the spine of the river.
1: I'm now going to read it towards the kingfisher, and then I'm going to hand over to Malcolm when I've read towards that. If that's all right, it's Monday, the sixth of April, nineteen eighty-one. Part of a great Irish month of fishing, and this interlude had begun on the Friday, the day of blue warmth, only five miles or so upriver from Gretna Manor. 25 minutes from Barry and Sonia, but on the opposite slope of the valley from the Murphy's House as Georg Badstein and Another World. Their destination, the Barrow at Boris. Their hosts were the Caverners, themselves old friends of Barry's. Andrew, Ted recognised. He'd seen him on TV before in a horse race. He offered them dinner that evening or lunch on Saturday. It was, Ted noticed, a giant house, colossal, and with the trappings of ancient wealth, but worn lightly, as lightly as Barry and Ted wore their own old barber jackets. Tina Kavanagh led them inside, and it could have been a hard-nosed farmhouse, except for the family motto in Irish, the massive doors of fine walnut. Tina translated the motto, peace and plenty, and then gave them the unauthorised version, fucking and farting. She'd been brought up in Lincolnshire, but now only knew England through its racecourses. Ted was intrigued by her confidence, the talk that came from her like a, a swift river, confident mannered over a substrate of what he knew was feeling considerateness. He couldn't imagine such a combination in England. Then down to the river. Tina led the way through sheep thronged parkland. Ted reunited lambs the wrong side of a fence with their mothers, down a rutted lane through ancient woodland, which must have required some care. They were pulling their boats, battered now behind the van, to the broad brown barrow, and left along the river to a small, rather grand, sandstone arch bridge over a side stream, but itself the size of the tour, and notably clearer than the main river. Ted noticed kingfishers hurtling down this stream, out under the bridge, and into a wood on the far bank of the barrow. Tina and her gaggle of children hung about a bit, then left them to it. Ted and Nick took their time. They fished till nightfall, then spent a steely cold first night in the van parked beside the bridge over that side stream they crossed just as they left the grandeur of the park. At jerpoint Ted's sleep had brought him dreams he needs to think about and to write. Now he dreamed of three bears, Alaskan or fairy tale. As he woke, Nick met him with another suggestion. Come on you Himalayan honey bear, get up. Nick's Oxford zoologist friends remember his jars of caught green honey. The Hugheses spent the morning trying a method that should have worked, easing their boat downstream between the weirs behind naturally drifting dead baits under floats. Should have, it didn't. At midday, Ted left Nick to it and went up for drinks. The Murphys, already old friends of the caverners, joined them and lunch. Wine flowed as well as the talk about the anti-pollution conservation committee Andrew was on and the need to inform farming practice with the latest research. Then final proof of this ancient wealth, not so much lightly worn this time as just well accreted Andrew takes Ted down into their vast cellars. Ted admires the stalagmites, each a stringy foot long, each with a drip on its tip and helping in their way to control the damp. He notices chalkboards with cellarage details, some dating back to the early 1800s, and empty champagne bottles strewn everywhere. The stair down too, he notes, is cluttered with rubbish. Then back to re- Then back to rejoin Nick. Beside a river that as night comes on and mist clings to its surface, keeps its secret, like some book they found much harder to read than its woodland banks. Broad, flat river we cut through to tonight, turning aside the pictures, turning the pages. Primroses, violets, milky maids, celandines, wooden anemones. In early April 2016, Roderick Murphy is driving me through massive stone gates and into the stable yard of Boris House. It's a day short of 35 years since that hot blue afternoon when Ted and Nick arrived here. Andrew and Tina give us tea in a kitchen of such proportions that the vast canvas over the dining table, one of Barry's of New Zealand, looked right at home. And then we're driving round past the 17th century crenellated confection of Boris House itself. Their son Morgan, one of that throng of children back in 1981, has taken on the farm more often than not when I've seen him, he's cheerfully mud spattered, and the responsibilities that come with such an extraordinary place. Most of the house in Parkland, apart from a family wing, and including ballroom and family chapel, earn their keep as a venue for weddings as they already were in 1981, Tina insists. When I mentioned Ted's diary, that explained all those empty champagne bottles. But those were in the days before websites. Now it makes commercial sense. Adds a personal grace note to those crenellations, and so the bookings, to mention the history responsible for that motto. The McMurrah caverners can trace their lineage right back to the kings of Leinster, the lost royal family of Ireland. Soon Tina was leaving me as she had led Ted and Nick past the chapel. We drove across that sheep grazed parkland, grass as startlingly green, and then, abandoning the cast, slithered down into rough woodland along the track that led past a large modern house by what she called the Mountain Stream. Salmon still run up it to spawn on the slopes of Mount Leinster, though in nothing like the numbers they once did. The water was startlingly clear. We left our cars there and walked downstream along a pitted overgrown track, dogs plunging into deep piles of dead leaves and charging up the hill after scents. Tina's talk did the same, but I also tried to listen to the water, keep one eye out, a faint hope. Amid all this chatter and dog crashing heartiness as we made our way down the stream, any self-respecting Kingfisher would be holed up somewhere three pools away. But I brought the subject up anyway. I wanted to hear it from Tina herself. She couldn't remember exactly where it was, but she was definite. Ted had seen a kingfisher fly past and had said, that's the first kingfisher I've ever seen. She remembered it particularly because the claim had surprised her Two. When do you see a kingfisher? What does it mean really to really actually see one? And how do you write about it when you have? It depends on your point of view, of course, and Ted couldn't have been better equipped, but he had competition. For the last hundred years or so, a single phrase of the Jesuit poet, Gerald Manley Hopkins, writing from a seminary in the Vale of Clwyd in 1877, seems to pose the problem and answer it in a single breath. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. And until that walk down the mountain stream with Tina and Roderick and the dogs, I'd never questioned the rightness of that insight, as swift as its moving target. All that most of us ever see of kingfishers, I suspect, is just that definitive traceable bullet moment of spontaneous combustion, when light reflects off their astonishing blue-black backs in flight and scatters, attracts our attention, and then confounds it slips out of our sight and into reflection, memory, analogy. It's crowning proof of how nature engages our senses, illuminating truths about the creatures we see, but then making us look again. In the after image of, iride- of iridescence's dazzle, other thoughts and feelings may spark. Physicists may wonder about the energy that organises it wherever it lies in the fibres of the feather metaphysicists like Hopkins who researched optics wa- while a Jesuit and novitiate may see in the light show the god who fathers forth whose beauty is without change but i've come to see that in making kingfishers and dragonflies actors in this larger drama of flickering light and heat as well as language dazzling specimens of the one thing and the same that each mortal thing does that is selves, goes itself. Hopkins converts these predators into prayers, overlooks their prey that fuels their fire. The poet's vested interest is ingenious, determined from a line that began in natural movement. He leads his readers through a series of perspectives and faces that take us to God, the father and back again. These past years of fishing on the torridge, the tamar and the dart, or walking whenever I can at first light beside the fen load that runs a 100 yards from my house, I've come to learn that the sharp midshipman piping that cut through a conversation or a drifting silence could and should give me notice of a blue streak that there I was primed to see. But I had never actually seen a kingfisher fishing let alone catch a fish. Tina's still talking this Saturday afternoon in April. Now we're getting close to its confluence of the barrow. Tina's tumbling operatic performance holds centre stage, drowns out the murmur of the mountain stream. I keep my eyes cast to the right height as a pool on a bend gives way to a run of downstream rapids. And a kingfisher catches them, draws them with me. My attention comes to rest as it does briefly a matter of two seconds on the lowest twig of a bush over a pocket of water at the foot of this run. It holds my eyes while there. It dips down, breaks the water, comes up again. A slant, unlike a glimpses, of a in, then shoots hurtles away towards the confluence with the barrow, all before I can or want to say a word. I go back to Ted's poem, the one that Ted told Barry, who told Tina and Andrew, who told Roger and Caroline and me. He'd written after his own conversation with Tina that Saturday afternoon. The kingfisher. I have nothing but Tina's memory of what Ted said to make me think so, but now I see it. It must have come to him quickly while he was in Ireland, a last call for a place in a primer of birds that his friend Leonard Baskin finished setting and printing that June. It's in good company. Ted had found other bird poems, the rival about a cormorant, whiteness about a heron, in encounters at dawn on the torridge the previous September and May, consolations for when those other stiller strangers eluded him. Like a kingfisher, They, the kingfisher, they found their way into River Two. The kingfisher is here now. It could suddenly be nowhere else. That Raggle taggle tumble down river must be the mountain stream charging past ancient wells so chaotically inhabited. But it's not just this river, it's what happens on it the sequence of events, the studded perch, the bird's high tech lens assisted X ray penetration of what, even to a fisherman with polarizing glare busting glasses, remains a tangle of glooms. The straight dash downstream through the light. He, and it is a single bird a real fisherman, royal to a capital fellow, kingfisher, beak full of ingots, leaves a rainbow splinter sticking in your eye. However fast or hard you look, neither language nor any human sense, hearing or vision can keep up. And you're not the only one, the oafish oaks seem to be looking in the wrong place too, for things they assume only to be stones. While he has lifted all its jewels, shivering the spine of the river. But there's more to the kingfisher than this smash and grab raid. Ted's learned from Hopkins, from first to last, one of his favorite poets. He too wants to say more, slyly. Remember, Sion of Ireland's lost royal family has just shown him what lies in and beneath that old house, the gap between theory and practice on pollution farmers whose practice lets them down, the easy chaos of old money, but what the ancient wealth sits on too, that amazing clutter of the Boris sellers, stalactites and champagne bottles. Now he spears this other spry royal of a bird, in The Kingfisher. Fisherman Ted answers back to Hopkins, reverses the direction of light, Through him, God, whizzing in the sun, source of solar light, sent tumbling, glimpses the angler. Through him, and whether him means the kingfisher or angler doesn't matter, because as Ted once wrote, fishermen understand why Christ was said to be a fish. Fishermen worship water. God's in for a surprise. He has his nose rubbed in another kind of genesis. The fishy mire, few humans ever bring themselves to imagine. We're in the tunneled Bankside burrow, where life and death get churned, swallowed, and shut out. Once the spine of that glittering ingot caught so expertly in the water of the mountain stream has been snapped, its spark of life extinguished. What did Ted say about the stairs down to the Boris cellars, just inside the main door? It was, as cluttered with rubbish. As the wildest dump, Malcolm.
2: Well, uh, thank thank you. I mean that I think is a very uh, a very beautiful reading of the of the poem itself, and a beautiful as you do so often in this book. It's a kind of sighting of the poem in a particular place, which doesn't restrict it but kind of backlights it. It struck me that the question you ask sort of in the middle of the passage that you read, which is when do you see a kingfisher what does it really mean to actually see one which is the kind of answer to the mystery that somehow on this moment ted saw not just the little glimpse the bit of peripheral vision that we see the flash the glimmer the 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 light on the back and we say i saw a kingfisher," but we didn't we saw the trace of one, the kind of the refraction of one. It's rather like what T.S. What Eliot said about poetry itself. He said poetry is peripheral vision, uh, but that the real art of the poet is to be still enough to woo the periphery in and see it. So I think, I think your reading of the poem is right, but I think it is very much a poem, the actual Kingfisher poem itself, a poem about seeing, and you mentioned a reversing the flow. I think there's a real reversal going on because it starts with us sort of seeing the Kingfisher and just study, you know, the Kingfisher perches He studies, escape from the jewelers. So we have the fisherman, the angler, looking from his own particular angle at the Kingfisher, at the Kingfisher perched, looking at the river. But then, you know, Ted gives these amazing series of, um, of kind of embedded metaphors, all governed in a sense by the idea of the kingfisher as the jeweler, as the one the jeweler, you know, has that jeweler's eye and the little lens on the jeweler's eye, which lets him see. And the jeweler's art is to cut the line, which releases the facet in the stone that allows us to see. And one of the things that's going on in this so uh, the sudden the, the 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 spilling when when we get The kingfish erupts through the mirror, a shower of prisms, a spilling armful of gens, beak full of ingots, and is a way, this is the great cutting the one straight line of the raggle-taggle-tumble-down river with a diamond. So you've got all the waviness of the river and you've got this one straight line. And then Ted, you know, does this one straight line. As you say, he reverses the flow. He leaves the rainbow spinter sticking in your eye. And then as it were, the The theology, as you know, I'm really intrigued by and drawn to the moments of a suddenly uh, explicit theology in Ted. And it's not, of course, for me in my tradition, it's not a comfortable theology, but it's a real theology to which attention must be paid. It's a genuine disclosure. So through him, God, whizzing in the sun, glimpses the angler. That's an astonishing idea, as it were that all the time you think the poem is about whether or not you can see a kingfisher. The concentration is on whether you can see and how you see and what you see and with what metaphors you see. And then suddenly in an instant, the reverse, it's a complete flip. You yourself are being gazed upon. You are being looked upon. And God is looking at you, as it were, from the light of the sun onto the kingfisher, then through the eye of the kingfisher in you. And then God is about this other business. There's this kind of he takes the great one of the great, you know, religious metaphors of the, the marriage of the sky and the earth. You know, the, the 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 bridegroom, all of that, and does this extraordinary thing through him. God marries a pit of fishy mire. That's a classic use of this, you know, it's not. It's going down. You know, the 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 the, the fish kingfisher's beak is now going down if it were, into the fish. And look, he's gone again, Spark sapphire, refracted beyond water. And this lovely, lovely, lovely line at the end, shivering the spine of the river. I mean, you and I have both glimpsed kingfishers, Mark, on the same river, in fact, and (laughs) written to each other about that and that extraordinary sense of that there's a kind of beneficence, there's a kind of blessing. You suddenly see the whole everything you see more clearly, because for a minute you've you've seen that iridescent light and Hopkins saw it. And, you know, Heaney, of course, saw it as well. You know, he spoke of the Kingfisher's blue bolt at dusk, you know, changing everything. But actually um, to change it all and say, no, no, I've not only seen, but I have been seen. And then this lovely thing, shivering the spine of the river. It is, as we would say, just, you know, resorting to cliche, a spine tingling moment for for us uh to see to see a kingfisher yeah but the idea of the movement of the kingfisher itself is literally shivering the spine of the river there's something astonishing going on that both the river is a living thing like us and in some sense ourselves as the river you know i think there's some relationship between this and, and go fish and mm-hmm. the way ted as it were Patiently allows he he naughts himself he loses his identity he he ta- loses his agency in being the separated observer and becomes part of the river itself in some sense. So in this poem, when they when we say our spine is tingled by the sudden sight of the kingfisher, then the river itself is the spine that is tingled, and where are in it there's an a, just a series of lightning quick giddying shifts of perspective going on in this poem that kind of reflect the sudden, you know, quick movement of the Kingfisher itself. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a poem to which I, I return a lot because one of the experiences I suppose you have, and you've done this beautifully in that your prose account of your experience of this poem in place, is that the, the experience of the Kingfisher is so quick, it's so f- fast and reflective and whizzing as the word he used, and it's gone. So, to go back patiently to it with the art of the poet and to make it happen again and make it happen reliably each time you read the poem. You know, that sense of, you know, again in Heaney's phrase, you know, what happens next is undiminished for having happened once, 10, 1,000 times before. There's, there's, um, it's an astonishing gift, I think, this particular poem Mm -hmm. to anybody that's ever had the experience and wanted in some way to recover a little of what it meant. Yeah. Uh, the poem is simply a gift that does that those are just some reflections on it and uh, with happy memories of sudden glimpses of kingfisher um i'm almost tempted to wonder where there's also a bit of a fisher king there but we won't go there <laughs>
1: well malcolm thank you you make me see things all that i should have written about and in fact seen in that brilliantly